This is CNT Talk. Every week, two friends debate the issues of the ages as we agree to disagree. It's never politically correct, but it's always entertaining. Join us tonight so you can sound knowledgeable at work tomorrow. We're smacking you upside the head with the hammer of truth. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Um, I want to start off with, well, you know, everybody knows I'm a Michigan fan. If you've been listening to the show for any length of time, I'm a Michigan fan. And there's some good news, bad news as a Michigan fan. And I want to start off with the good news, which is the Michigan Wolverine football team now has a showdown with Ohio State next week, at which point they could get to the Big Ten championship, which could lead to the national championship, but it won't because it's Ohio State and they can't beat Ohio State with under Jim Harbaugh. That's the good news. The bad news is Michigan apparently doesn't require any actual ability as a lawyer to graduate from law school at the university of Michigan. And I say this because the, there's an ADA in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who apparently or has claimed he graduated from law school, but I didn't see any evidence of that. Tony, I felt as though as a non-lawyer, I could have done a better job than he did as a lawyer. Your That's thoughts interesting. Into it. Well, I look at it slightly differently. I don't, um, I don't doubt that he graduated from law school and I don't doubt that he was probably uh, high in his class. Um, he may be a very smart guy. In my view, that entire prosecution was a disgrace and I find it to be less about not knowing the law and more about being completely unethical and willing to brazenly violate pretty much every one of the judge's evidentiary rulings and, and also any of the precepts relating to constitutional protections for defendants, uh, because that was an entirely political show trial. That's what that, that's what we just observed. So I'm, I have really, well, I do have certain critiques having watched segments of the trial, but it was very clear that this prosecution, uh, I explained this to a friend the other day, a prosecutor's job is not to convict people. Mm-hmm. A prosecutor's job is to seek the truth. Yes. And what that means is if you are confronted with a case where a defendant has been charged and you realize in your investigation that the evidence is insufficient to support criminal charges against that individual, your job as a prosecutor, your ethical responsibility is to say, we are no longer going to pursue this case because it doesn't warrant it, because the evidence doesn't support our original theory of what these crimes were. And that should have happened the moment after these prosecutors watched the dozens of different angles of video which clearly showed that Kyle Rittenhouse was defending himself, classic, classic self-defense, and that they didn't have a case against him. But they didn't care about any of that. Uh, They were working for the mob. They were working for purely ideological and political reasons because they didn't like Kyle Rittenhouse because Kyle Rittenhouse is a 17-year-old white guy who, of course, was carrying a dread weapon of war, (laughs) legally, by the way. Mm -hmm. And you're just not allowed to do that in 2021 America. And the prosecutors, and we'll talk more about what went on in this trial, perhaps the most brazen thing that they did is the, uh, I forget, Binger is the main guy. There was another one of his colleagues that was trying to, yes. During closing comments, 
the other guy literally said to the jury that Kyle should have just accepted his beating. Yep. He literally said to the jury, you know what, ladies and gentlemen, there are just times when you're going to have to take it. You're going to have to roll over and accept the beating. Now, I would love, uh-huh. I would love to put Mr. What's-His-Name to the test and throw him out there, and let's see what he says to his theory in the middle of a riot that he's just going to take the beating. Oh, by the way, from three different guys mm-hmm. who were all multiple recidivist felons, including the main guy who was a serial child rapist. Let me repeat that. <laughs> serial child rapist. Did you hear anything about that on the news chat? No. No, no. I, apparently he was the leader of his church choir. Hmm. So these guys were not just your average, uh, oh, they were just left-wing suburban dads who decided to go out. No, these were hardcore criminals. And if you don't doubt that these guys were going to inflict serious, they were threatening to kill him. They were trying to bash him in the head with a skateboard. The one guy admitted on the stand during the prosecution's case that Mm -hmm. he first didn't have a gun. Well, he did have a gun. Well, it wasn't out. Well, okay, it was out. All right. Well, I was holding it and eventually admitted that the only time this is of course the guy that survived gross Kreutz or whatever. I forget his name, that the only time that Rittenhouse finally shot him is when he was pointing his Glock directly at him. Yep. Yeah. So this entire, well, I have a number of, things that I want to say about this case, but I am thrilled, literally thrilled. I was getting very worried. This jury was deliberating for 26 hours. And normally what that means for the defense is not good, particularly when it seemed on its face so self-evident what the proper and only verdict could have been. So I am thrilled to death for this kid. And look, we can have a conversation about, oh, he shouldn't have been there. It's totally irrelevant. Mm -hmm. He was there. Mm -hmm. He's a free American citizen. He's entitled to be there. He's breaking no laws in being there. He's entitled to have a gun. And just because you've done that, even though the left wants to apparently change this rule, does not mean that you get to be beaten within an inch of your life and possibly murdered because you decided to go and attempt to help people whose businesses were being vandalized and burned in the midst of this rioting. But that was the prosecution's theory. If you show up with a gun that you're legally entitled to carry and have suggested that you're no, no violence, right? He's not running around trying to shoot people, but that is enough. That is sufficient to justify anything that happens to you later. That yeah. was their theory of this case. Yeah. So uh, I remember the, the sage advice from Dean Wormer, and I feel like I should play that. So let me, let me share that with you. Dean Wormer's advice. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. If you don't know this from Animal House, fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life. I feel as though looking at this case now there's there's newspapers in in Britain who are reporting that Kyle Rittenhouse got off after killing two black men in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year. There's even and there's a clip later if we get to it uh, a democratic operative who's a who's a house member who claims that Jake this all started because of Jacob Blake being unjustly killed by the police as he was unarmed. 
Jacob Blake was not killed and he was not unarmed. But the facts don't seem to care about the narrative that we're trying to get across here. So let's let's start at the beginning here a little bit. Uh, Jacob Blake, dirtbag, complete dirtbag, no redeeming qualities that we've seen from anything we've heard about this man. He pulled a knife and was resisting arrest and was shot because he pulled a knife on cops. At the end of the day, you don't pull a knife on the cops. You don't pull a gun on the cops. That's how you get hurt and or killed. So it's not, it's not police brutality when you pull a weapon on the police. That's not how this works. So he was shot. Kenosha, Wisconsin erupts in violence, a la George Floyd, Minneapolis. That all happens uh, one night of rioting. And, and remember, this is the same CNN that was standing in front of burning buildings saying mostly peaceful as they're standing in front of a burning building, mostly peaceful. Kyle Rittenhouse, who, whose father lives in Kenosha, went to Kenosha. Now, this whole – he took a, a weapon across state lines. One, he didn't take the weapon across state lines. It was given to him when he got there. And two, you're allowed to cross state lines. And three, you can take a long gun that you're allowed to have in your vehicle if it's unloaded and, and clear. So that whole thing finally got thrown out right before the jury got the trial or got the uh, – uh, deliberations, which I don't even know how it even got that far because there's a law in Wisconsin that you can't have a sawed off shotgun or a sawed off rifle in your possession. That's fine. Okay. But you can have a rifle. You can have a full barreled rifle, which is what Kyle Rittenhouse had. I don't care what the accoutrement is on the outside of the rifle, making it AR 15. It's still a long rifle. That's it. It's nothing special. It just looks, looks brutal. All that happened, we get to the point where the jury gets the deliberations. Now, all the media has been for months and months and months telling us how this is a white supremacist. Now, I want to be clear, Kyle Rittenhouse, white. All the people involved in the case, white. The three people that were shot, white. I'm not sure where the white supremacist, where the racist aspect of this comes in, because as you alluded to earlier, Tony, these three guys were not there to support Black Lives Matter. This was an excuse for them to go crazy in the, in the community. They were not Black Lives supporters. And if they say they were, they were lying about that because, as you said, one was a convicted pedophile, one was um, uh, tried to kill somebody else, and the other one was, had a felon with a gun. None of these guys were good guys. That doesn't mean they should die, not for, for this. It doesn't mean Kyle Rittenhouse, as you said earlier, Probably shouldn't have been there as a 17-year-old kid, but he didn't have he wasn't illegally there. Maybe my child at 17, I probably would not have put in that situation, but he was. So that all happened and goes to the jury. Or I'm sorry, goes to the trial. I I alluded to it at the beginning, Dr. Uh, ADA Binger. You said he shouldn't have brought the case. So I can't remember if this is ADA Binger or DA no, Binger. This is, you know? this is this is ADA Binger. Okay, so when you say he shouldn't have brought the case, obviously the boss says we're bringing the case, we're not bringing the case, and that should have been the, the DA sure. should have been okay. not bringing it. So, but here's how this works. And, of course, you know, we have to pretend that we're in fantasy land because everyone <laughs> knows they're not, going to, they're not going to give up this case. And that's right. part of the problem, which is everyone is so scared of the mob. And, and, again, I'm sure this entire – remember, this is Wisconsin – this is the same state, we've talked about this, where a renegade 
Democrat activist DA went after multiple families for the crime of giving money to Scott Walker's reelection campaign and, and literally had SWAT teams bashing down their doors in the middle of the night under what was called a John Doe raid, meaning these are things that they do to organ for to people who are in organized crime. They did this to American citizens in Wisconsin because they were angry with them for supporting Scott Walker. So this is the type of stuff that goes on in places like this. But the way this should have worked is even if the DA says we're taking this case because this is high profile and this is going to raise our you know national consciousness about this as the ADA when you gather the information and the evidence and you review the videos and then, oh, you also interview the same witness who, who admitted on the stand that, no, actually, he shot at me only after I pulled a loaded Glock and pointed it at him. And then you go back to your boss and you say, this is a train wreck. We can't prosecute this guy. None of the facts actually support any of these claims. Ha ha, in a perfect world. Uh, actually, not even in a perfect world. In just a world where people are functioning with some level of scruples, that's what would happen. Of course, that's not the world in which we live. And so this was pushed through, come hell or high water, they were going to make this into a circus. And by the way, don't count out the attempt by these people uh, to find some way to justify federal intervention here. You're already hearing this from this, you know, the Penguin, Jerry yeah. Nadler, Yes. Right now, remember, Chad, um, there is no civil rights violation, as you pointed out, unless mm-hmm. the New York Times is now going to create a new category. George Zimmerman was a white Hispanic. Apparently, these three white guys might be white African-Americans. I don't know. So <laughs> there's literally no justification for the DOJ to have any involvement here. But I think there is a, a not trivial chance that they're going to sniff around and try to do something, which again demonstrates how, if they do, demonstrates yet again as if we needed another example of how utterly lawless these people are. They only care about one thing, which is will to power and ruthlessly punishing their political enemies. And that's exactly the reason they hate Kyle Rittenhouse, because what he did is he actually showed up somewhere and defended himself against the mob. And in 2021 America, you're not allowed to do that. To use the famous words from, I believe it was Marilyn Mosby, or maybe it was the other lady in Baltimore, these people need their space to destroy. How dare you step in and create an impediment to whatever they're doing? Yeah. So you you referred to Jerry Nadler and the calling on AG Merrick Garland to Take a look at this. The only thing I can think they could possibly pull up here was that Kyle Rittenhouse crossed state lines from his residence to Wisconsin and therefore becomes an FBI and a, a federal maybe. There no, is no, 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 because here's the thing. The analysis would have to be that the commission of the crime involved crossing state lines, okay. not the fact that you walked into another state and then robbed a liquor store. Does that become a federal crime because when you were in a different state? No, of course it doesn't. That's completely absurd. But the left doesn't require any legitimate basis for doing anything. So if they decide that they still want to make, you know, that they're not going to let Kyle Rittenhouse go, then they will continue to drag this on. I hope 
that Kyle Rittenhouse gets himself the, the nastiest attack dog plaintiff's lawyer he can find and that he sues every member of the media, every person that went out there and represented him as a white supremacist into oblivion. I hope he I hope he gets one million billion dollars. Well, there's a meme going around that he and Nick Sandman are going to share custody of CNN because that, Nick Sandman was the uh, Covington Catholic guy who got two hundred fifty million dollars because they made false statements about you him. You probably also saw Chad that that MSNBC apparently uh, told. Some at least somebody who worked for MSNBC claimed he was told to go film the bus where that the jurors were riding on. Now, for what possible reason? Oh, I know, I know, because we're going to then post their names and their addresses and their jobs online unless they do what we want. Like Maxine Waters says, unless we get what we want, we burn. It's all going to burn. And Chad, this is what is the most terrifying thing right now about where we are in America, which is we have half of this country, not not so much half the country, but the, the people that represent the left, they are respecters of no laws. They are respecters of no morals. This for them is simply about wielding power And so if it takes them terrorizing jurors in order to extort them into producing the result that they demand, like ironically, these are the people that are calling Rittenhouse a vigilante, right? That's, they're the ones that are whining about vigilantism. And yet Mm -hmm. this is what they're doing. And Chad, I have reason to think that one of the, one of the reasons that this took 26 hours is because, you know, that there are jurors on that panel who recognized if we come back and acquit, we may be targets. They yeah. learned that lesson with the Chauvin trial. Mm-hmm. Okay, we, we, We're walking into a courthouse every day that's surrounded by barbed wire fencing and armed guards. And we have people on the streets that are jetting in to foment violence. And they mm-hmm. know the same thing here. And this is the new tactic, which is, you know what? We'll just make sure the jury understands you best you best do our bidding because yeah. if you don't, we'll wreck your life too. So uh, I like to do the reverse thing a lot of times. And if Kyle Rittenhouse had been black, same same victims or whatever, you, looters, rioters, whatever you call them, were white, would the press, would Hollywood be cheering this verdict? Simply because Kyle was black would they be happy with it or would they still be upset because a person got away with killing people on the other side? Would they call him an uncle Tom because he was there to defend against? No, no, the wait, wait, let's, right. let's, let's have more fun with your hypothetical. Okay. So Kyle Rittenhouse is a black man mm-hmm. who is defending his, uh, who's defending businesses from a bunch of marauding proud boys, proud yeah. boys, you know, and the, um, I don't know, the alt-right militias that are always hiding in the shrubbery. And so there, and he goes there as a 17 year old to protect minority owned businesses. And he wants to render help and first aid. And it turns out, let's keep the same profile for each of these three white guys, except they can be portrayed as right wingers. And so they chased him and they threatened to kill him and tried to bash his head in with a skateboard and then grabbed at his gun. And then the guy pulled out a Glock and this besieged African-American kid shot all three of them. First of all, 
there wouldn't have been a trial at all against black Kyle Rittenhouse. And there would have been some national, again, uh, convulsion about the need for the FBI and the DOJ and perhaps some paratroopers to investigate the scourge, right? This would be tied immediately to January 6th, and we would see the continuation of this is why we must take guns, this is why we must have the National Guard in the streets, because the domestic terror white menace is everywhere. They're not just parents at school boards. No, no, no. They're in the streets. They're attacking black men. That would have been the entire narrative for days and months on end. See, that's, that's the problem I'm having with this because in a normal world, you would say the guy defended himself. Kyle Rittenhouse defended himself. And I'm not going to take into account what the other three guys were. That's after the fact. That doesn't make them good people. But if you're self-defense, you're self-defense. And it doesn't matter who comes after you. If they do that, they are wrong and you have a right to defend yourself. Even even the ADA Krauss who who felt that you should take your beating and you're a coward for not taking your beating and and proportional I've heard this re- as well. Proportional response. Because one guy was using his fist, Kyle using his gun was not a proportional response. Right. Of course, he yeah. was being beaten with a skateboard at the same time as getting punched by the fist and another guy with a gun. I'm not sure Sure. And, and of course, we're going to and they're just going to stop. Right. They're sure. going to stop at the skateboard once he's on the ground, once he's knocked unconscious. They're, they're just going to leave him alone because they're all about. And isn't it fascinating, Chad, that the same people who are, again, talking about proportionality are the same pro Hamas crew who always mention that in the context of Israel, which is, listen, <laughs> I know that we're lobbing all these Katusha rockets into civilian areas in an attempt to murder women and children and blow up hospitals and Sparrow's pizzerias, but it's really unfair, number one, for you guys to have this iron dome that blocks all of these, and then number two, for you guys to fight back and actually kill people, that's no good. It's not proportional. It's the same diseased thinking of the same morally perverse people. Yeah, and I think that's where I'm struggling because I expected expected people not be happy with Kyle Rittenhouse getting acquitted. I did not expect the same vile stupidity from the same people. You didn't? Over and over. Well, I, I had hope that they would say nothing. Not, not <laughs> that they would be happy, but they would say nothing. And yet it's, it's as though it's okay to have railroaded this kid into a life in prison because it would fit whatever they were trying to do. And you brought up the gun issue. I would say that it didn't matter what color Kyle Rittenhouse was, there was going to be, there's going to be a discussion about gun violence again. And we're going to talk about getting rid of guns on the street. And, and Kyle Rittenhouse shouldn't have had a gun. Forget that the other guy had a gun and forget that other people in the scene had a gun. Kyle Rittenhouse had a gun and therefore we need to get rid of guns. We need to take it from you. But Chad, it was also a scary looking gun. Yes, it it's was a scary, the scary gun. It's the assault weapon. It's the weapon of war. It's the one that yes. fires the uh, standard light armor piercing rounds like they have in the aliens movies, the space Marines. It's that gun. Yes. And that is the worst kind of gun, Chad, because as an over under grenade launcher, right? It has all of those features. It has camo. It has a bump stock, yes. even though none of them know how any of this stuff works. Oh, and Not one a- of my. One of my favorite parts of the trial was when the idiot, and I'm going to call him an idiot because it is idiotic. He actually took an AR-15. AR-15. 
Hmm? It was Kyle's gun. Yes. They, he yes. took the AR-15, put his finger on the trigger, and swept the gallery. People mm-hmm. sitting in the gallery. That is firearms 101. You never point a gun at anyone, and you never point put your finger on the trigger unless you intend to use it with lethal force. It doesn't matter if you've checked it 12 times. You never, ever do that. But of course, Binger knows nothing about guns. He just knows that they're evil demon weapons. And so I'm amazed that the judge didn't immediately stop the trial, have the jury excuse themselves and ream Binger out. It's incredible that he did that. I I would agree with you. And and right after Alec Baldwin shot somebody on his movie set doing the same stupid thing. I, I never saw, I, I watched the video. I watched Binger pick it up and I watched him scan the crowd. Luckily he did not have it up against his shoulder. It was like at the tip of it, tip of the bottom bump stock was against his shoulder, but you don't do that stuff. And I, I, I feel as though part of me thinks that Binger and Kraus really or, just didn't have their hearts in this whole prosecution. They just like their boss told them to do it. And they go, eh, we'll show up. We're just going to make stuff up. We're going to say stuff. Even when the judge reamed them for bringing stuff in that the judge told them not to put in, they still brought it up in front of the jury. It is yeah. so. They, well, they did see. And that's win. so just a little inside baseball here for people who are not lawyers. So one of the things that Binger did, and there was the, the prosecution apparently wanted to get into evidence some testimony that at some point in time, and I didn't watch the whole trial at all. I mean, I've, I've watched snippets of the video. They sure. wanted to get into evidence a statement that Rittenhouse apparently made or was attributed to him that when he saw a whole bunch of these people while he was there that were rioting and looting, you know, that he basically wanted to shoot them. Like he would love to shoot them to stop them from doing this. And so the prosecution wanted to tell the jury about his thoughts, his unacted on <laughs> thoughts and comment, even though at the time he didn't even have a weapon, he never acted on them. And of course the the court properly said, you're not going to tell the jury that it's incredibly prejudicial. It has nothing to do with your case. And there was no actual conduct, right? We're not going to allow you to talk about what you might've been daydreaming about while you were in your car. Okay. So the judge makes this ruling couple days in the judge reiterates the very morning of testimony because Binger says to him, well, your honor, there's now been some testimony. I think it's what they call open the door, meaning it was barred, but because certain, certain people testified a certain way, I think I'm now allowed to get into it. And the judge, again, that very morning said to him, no, my ruling on this issue has not changed. Okay. So any lawyer that is not in a persistent vegetative state that hears that from the judge, not just, so the judge had already ruled pre-trial. The judge rules during the trial initially, and then he rules again the same day and says, my ruling has not changed. You can't get into that. And at what you alluded to, what does Binger do? Binger starts right in on Rittenhouse and starts going into the very area that that morning the judge had said, I'm still not allowing you to talk about this. So the judge is stupefied, stops the trial, tells the jury to leave, and then launches, you know, starts yelling at Binger as he should have. And this is incredible. And so Binger's response to this was, and again, you have to sort of be a lawyer to to grasp how ridiculous this is. Binger says to the judge, well, Your Honor, it was my understanding that that you had left the door open. And the judge says, um, 
did you hear what I said to you three hours ago? And so Binger then says, he goes, well, I thought that what Kyle had just said on the stand opened the door. Now, what you have to understand is the lawyer doesn't get to make that decision. It would be like me cross-examining someone. The judge just told me, don't ask them about the green car. And I say, isn't it true you own a green car? And the judge says, what are you doing? Oh, I'm sorry, judge. I, on my own, unilaterally decided that it was okay for me to ask about the green car, even though you just told me not to do that. If any, any normal lawyer did that at a trial, I mean, I would probably be facing some sort of disciplinary complaint filed by the judge, right? Perhaps sanctioned. And yet Binger did this stuff repeatedly. Just incredible how brazen they were. Oh, sorry, judge. I just decided for myself. And the other thing that he did, which you may have seen, is he then cross-examined Rittenhouse on his decision to remain silent until yes. trial. Yes. Which is the bedrock protection of any defendant in a criminal case, the right not to self-incriminate. You can never, ever ever mention that in a way that is supposed to cast a negative light on a criminal defendant. They learn that in fourth grade law school and Binger just intentionally gets uh, into that. And the judge again was like, what are you doing? And, and Binger of course has no answer because he's, and I did like the fact that Binger at one point was talking about, you know, I had a good faith, um, you know, misunderstanding. And the judge said, no, I don't believe you. I don't believe you're acting in good faith. And, but I don't think Binger cared. I really no. don't think he cared. I, well, you, anybody who's ever watched a TV show with police in it, they give you your Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent. It's settled. It's been settled since the 60s. It's not new. This Binger hasn't been alive before this happened, so he knows this is the law. Well, Binger's, it, Binger's an experienced trialer. He, he's, he's been practicing for probably 20-some years. So yeah. the, the, uh, he absolutely knows this. He doesn't care. And I actually started thinking to myself, is he intentionally trying to actually cause a mistrial because yeah. the trial was going so badly for them? And remember, in a criminal context, normally a mistrial allows the state to have another go at it. Now, one of the things that the defense attorneys did after Binger's shenanigans is apparently in Wisconsin, you can file a motion for a mistrial with prejudice. And what that means is if it's with prejudice, meaning their behavior has been so outrageous, they don't get another bite at the apple. The judge says this trial is over and there will never be another trial against this defendant. But I actually think that may have been part of what Binger was trying to do, which is, look, we're going down in flames Let's just see. I'm just going to be as outrageous and brazenly uh, violate every single ruling by the court to see if they can force a mistrial, and then we'll try it again. Well, it would give them an advantage to try it again if there was without prejudice because they'd already know what they screwed up and they'd know what they could do differently. Well, no, no. But, yeah, they may know what they screwed up, but it doesn't change the evidence. So those videos still exist. That guy's testimony still exists. There is simply no evidence that Kyle Rittenhouse did anything other than attempt to protect himself in a reasonable way from men that were literally trying to kill him or cause him serious bodily harm, which, of course, in the moment, no one is expected to distinguish those two things. You're entitled to defend your life. Yes. So I have two questions on this. So the first one was, did they not do witness prep with their own witnesses to know what they might say? 
No, I think they did know. I think they did know. Because any witness prep is going to include walking through the direct testimony and then doing what I would do, which is extensive cross-examination of my own Mm -hmm. witnesses to make sure here's how we handle this. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I think that they knew, I think they knew and they hoped that somehow they were just going to brazen their way through it. The other thing I had to laugh about, and I've got to wonder, did you see the picture that showed one of the prosecutors with his head, the other guy with his head in his hands and Mm -hmm. the caption said, this was his reaction to when Grosskreutz or whatever basically aided the defense's case entirely by saying, I pulled out my gun. Now, right. a lot of times they'll catch still shots of lawyers. First of all, you will never see any trial lawyer with their head in their hands in front of the jury. Yeah. It doesn't matter if your client has just doused himself with lighter fluid and lit it on fire. Yeah. You sit there stoic and you pretend that this is fantastic what's happening so if he actually did that in response to bad testimony again like where did these guys learn to practice law that's incredible to me so that that's the one thing and then the second thing and here's where i'm confused the video high def low def to me it really doesn't matter i watch both versions I don't know why the prosecution introduces it because it doesn't help their case. It really actually helps the defense and that whole, the, the, the low def version that was transferred. Now let me, I'm going to help the people out there who don't understand how technology works, which is apparently the prosecution. When you say, when you attack for, first of all, the Krauts, the second chair there, he says, I, I was not at the office. So I sent the defense a copy of the video through my personal Gmail as a lawyer, Tony, would you ever send a a video or any evidence in a trial or case through your personal account for any reason? Um, that's highly unlikely. And the other thing is, is I'm not a criminal lawyer. So, so here's the thing in the context of a criminal trial, no, that would be, that would be very unlikely. I mean, I could theoretically see it if it, if somehow, let's say you, I don't know, there, there's some video that was mistakenly not produced. And so you need to get it to them quickly. And you're, so I could see that happening, but Chad, this begs the question, which is how is it not already produced before? Well, why wasn't it produced before? Do you not have a work laptop that you could send it from? Why is it on your personal laptop your personal account yeah, i mean none of that would never none of that would ever be on a on my no. personal gmail no. account and that's Did just you, in a that's in a civil trial right there's no reason even the even the defense said we have an air gap which it means it's not connected to the internet we have a laptop here a lenovo laptop that is not connected meaning it can't connect to the internet it has no option for somebody to get into you physically have to possess it to get any information off of it that doesn't make any sense so so people understand Gmail has a limit on file size. Okay. File size, meaning how many bits and bytes are in the file. So when you send something, a movie, even if it's a couple minutes long in a standard definition, it takes up less space and a high definition takes up more space to send that. Most likely that file size would have been too large for a personal Gmail account to send. It would have bounced back and say too big. What we found out later was that this ADA Krauss, had a program on his computer called Handbrake, 
which I know you're very familiar with, Tony, because it's part of the right. I was one of the initial developers of Handbrake, and then they cut me out of the IPO. I was very angry. You should be. So Handbrake is a French company, French-produced piece of software that basically people would use to rip DVDs. So they would take a file off of a DVD, and it doesn't break the encryption on the DVD, but it reduces the size so that you can watch it on a computer. So it takes it down much smaller. This program was on this computer, and the file that was sent to the defense was a smaller version versus the larger uh, version that was put on a thumb drive. I don't know if it makes a difference in the end of results. I don't know how it helped the prosecution, and I'm not sure why the defense, other than to say, hey, look at these guys. They're a bunch of screwballs who are trying to screw us out of this case. I don't know what else it did. I don't, I don't really see the benefit to the defense. Well, uh, here's the benefit, and I, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't compare right, right. the two, but in a case where the prosecution is alleging uh, from video footage that somehow what Kyle Rittenhouse did was not entitled to be considered self-defense and was aggressive, you want the highest possible – if you're the defense, sure. you don't sure. want – particularly since you know that the video evidence supports your defense, you want the best available, most – refined right most high def video that you can get so that there's no ambiguity so the prosecution can't spin and say oh did you see that did you see yeah. that when he pulled out a samurai sword right there you know like wait where where oh oh uh, it's gone right you want the best possible so i actually i look based on their other behavior i'm not willing to admit uh, i'm not willing to concede that that was an innocent mistake i, oh, I, don't think, I so. think yeah. i think that they knew the better video makes it even worse for us. So let's just send them the grainier, whatever it was, lower res stuff, because then we can still kind of play around with it. And you can't really see. It's a little murky. Oh, look, he has a Tommy gun under his sweatshirt. Yeah, so I, I attribute bad faith to that as well. I, I Everything I heard throughout the course of the trial, I'm not saying the defense was amazing. I think they did exactly what they needed to do. I think the prosecution was horrible every step of the way. I, I think they lost any benefit of the doubt, at least from the judge's perspective, when they kept doing these things, bringing stuff up that you shouldn't brought up the evidence with the, the, the video that they, Oh, we found out there's an FBI drone video that we didn't know we had until just now. Well, you didn't ask for it. So we didn't give it to you. That's not discovery. That's well, that's but crap. here's the thing again, in a criminal context, you don't have to ask for it. See, Great. that's that's my world. That's civil litigation. If I don't ask for documents, I don't get no documents. But Great. in the criminal world, they have an obligation to turn over their evidence to the defense. It's not like one of these, hey, you didn't ask me for the one video feed that shows you didn't commit the murder. So sorry, you're still going to go to jail. That's yeah. not how it works. Um, no, they're, they're slimy as it gets. Slimy. But you say they were horrible. Part of the reason they were horrible is because this goes back to my first point. They yeah. had no case. And when you have no case, I don't care how good you are. You can't conjure facts and evidence out of thin air, which is one of the reasons that they should have never, ever had this trial. But again, this was a political trial. That's what this yeah. was. So coming to the jury deliberations, I, I was the same opinion as you. 26 hours after three days, I thought they're just trying to figure, they're trying to convert somebody from an acquittal to a guilty. I, I can't imagine why it took 26 hours to come to that conclusion. I really don't understand it. I wasn't sitting there watching everything, but my goodness, what, 
what did you need to deliberate for 26 hours? Now, there was, probably, there was a theory that there was the jury four person uh, was on the fence and probably wanted a uh, guilty verdict, and they converted her, apparently. Uh, yeah, I, don't know how anybody, I don't know how anybody knows that. That's just sheer speculation. Uh, yeah, it no, would no, have been no. fascinating to listen to those deliberations and probably very scary to hear the things that they may have been talking about, including, well, you know, it is a good point that um, if he had just, you know, just curled into the fetal position and let them whack him a few times, everything would have been fine. Um, <laughs> I also think that there was probably some discussion about, again, the whole, because this is what Binger kept, insinuating is you're just not allowed to have that gun there. The minute that you, the minute you bring that gun, you have, you deserve whatever's coming to you. When you're in that short dress, you deserve what you get. That's exactly what he was saying to the jury. So if Grosskreutz had been shot because somebody saw him have a gun, would he, and he shot back, would he not have been able to claim self-defense because he had a gun too? Right. Well, that's the whole the whole rule where if you and that's what Binger was trying to argue, that somehow you void, you eliminate the initial presumption of self-defense. If you take an aggressive action that then sets a chain of events in motion where you've now spurred somebody to pull a gun on you. Right. So you don't. And that's what he was trying to do. Unfortunately, unfortunately for him, he had nothing that would have suggested that Rittenhouse was initially the aggressor. But to your question, yes, if. If he pulls the gun and then he's trying to claim self-defense, meaning that Grosskreutz guy, no, he doesn't get to say that anymore because you were the initial aggressor. So yeah, well, I'm saying once- if, he, if he just showed the weapon, like Kyle Rittenhouse showed the weapon. He did not shoot the weapon. He did not aggravate anybody with the weapon. He had the weapon. If right. Grosskreutz says, you can see the gun in my pocket, people see it, and somebody says, I'm going to attack you because of it, by that definition, by Binger's definition, he shouldn't have been able to claim self-defense either. Correct. That is correct. Binger, Binger's worldview, which is this case was entirely about his own personal worldview that guns are bad, or certainly guns in the hands of 17-year-old white kids who are trying to defend property, is yes, you brought a gun. That is a uh, a weapon which is um, its mere existence. Its mere existence is sufficient to, let's use the, the fun, trigger it triggers all the other bad people, and so they get to do what they want now because they're really yeah. scared of your demon gun. You shouldn't have it. Well, that, and that's what I was like. Wait, you got to be kidding me! Simply by possessing the gun, I am aggravating you, and therefore you have the right to beat me and shoot yes, me. Yes, it's it's a provocation in and of itself. That's amazing. So the predictable responses after the fact, he gets acquitted. Maybe Jerry Nadler encourages. Well, you said this earlier. It would be amazing in a bad way if the DOJ investigated this case and tried to bring charges. But we've seen Joe Biden uh, do something basically unconstitutional with the rent moratorium. He did it again with the vaccine mandate through OSHA. He knows it's unconstitutional, and he does it anyway. So my question to you, Tony, is Donald Trump was impeached twice, once the day before he was leaving office for high crimes and misdemeanors. You take an oath as president to uphold the constitution. When you come out blatantly and say, I know this is unconstitutional. I'm going to do it anyway. Is that, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting we do a a repeat impeachment. I don't think that solves any problems. It's a political motive, but 
we've got a president who has done it twice and he knew it and said he knew it, knew he couldn't do it and did it anyway. What, what am I missing from this president that he thinks, I know it's wrong, you well, know it's wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. Because it's not just this president, it's the entire Democratic Party. It's many of the judges that are appointed to the bench. You have basically four Supreme Court justices, or three now, sorry, three sure. uh, on the left, that the Constitution is irrelevant. It is irrelevant to these people. They want a particular outcome, and they figure out how we're going to get there. Oh, wait, there's a Constitution that doesn't allow that? So what? It's, it, was, it was designed and implemented and written by a bunch of antiquated white slavers. They're bad. We don't like them. This is the, the shiny 21st century. Who cares? So Joe Biden is just taking his cues from his entire party and the entirety of the political left in this country, which they haven't had any use for the Constitution for a long time. And now they're just incredibly brazen about the fact that, yeah, doesn't even matter to us. Doesn't even matter. We're going to use OSHA, a a minor sub-bureaucracy within the federal leviathan who is supposed to be engaged in monitoring and regulating workplace safety and we're going to use an emergency method what do they call it an emergency standard we're going to promulgate that it's only been done i think six other times in the history of that organization and every one of them except for one was struck down and that was actually stuff relating to workplaces and we're just going to mandate that people actually have to get a medical procedure they're gonna have to take a shot if that is permissible the uh, OSHA could tell you that you're not allowed to eat French toast anymore. They could just put Nurse Bloomberg in charge of OSHA, and he could declare you're going to have to sell your SUVs. Uh, you're not allowed to have more than two kids. Uh, yeah, no sugar in your household, and we're going to send the uh, you know the G-men around to police whether you have weapons in your home because all of that stuff is bad. It's unsafe. It's unhealthy, and we have unlimited power. Oh, by the way, we don't actually have to follow any of our regulatory mandate to have consent and public hearings. No, no, no. This is so much of an emergency. We're just going to we're just going to implement this across the country. And that is exactly what they think is entirely permissible. Well, so two things happened yesterday. Um, one was Kyle Rittenhouse got off, got acquitted. Uh, and that was the highlight of the Kamala Harris presidency. The 85 minutes that she was yes. in charge yesterday, that was the highlight, uh, complete total, sum total of her highlights. Uh, but I, Jason Whitlock was on last night with uh, Tucker Carlson. And I, I don't always agree with Jason Whitlock. Um, he's kind of a blowhard sometimes. But his thoughts are this whole trial and this whole movement, the 1619 Project, the, everything about this is to portray the United States in the most – awful light saying we've got to burn it all down and start over we've got to take the constitution say it doesn't work it was put together by slavers we are irredeemable country we need to stop everything we're doing burn it down and rework the entire country to our utopia vision whatever that is which is where we're in charge of everything basically we're china we tell you what to do when to do and how to do it and you're okay with that because we give you food and water what do you think that's not a new theory i mean that's so he's just pointing out sort of the, you know, the Marxist roots of all of this stuff. Uh, here's yeah. what it's more about, though. Yeah, sure. That's their, that's their admitted objective, fundamental trans- transformation. That was the Lightworkers uh, <laughs> yes. slogan. 
what they're really wanting to be able to do is say, uh, this justifies continued massive expansions of government power because there are so many threats. There are so many clingers running around with their AR-15s. There's so many diseased, anti-vaxxed evangelicals at Sturgis and at Hardee's, and we must have a government that can stop all of these threats and protect, right, all of the good people. So ultimately, you're correct. That's what they want to do. But the end game is we need to continue to expand all of these great powers that we arrogated unto ourselves during COVID, this social control experiment that went amazingly well. But you know what? That is not the end of the crises. Gaia is dying. She's choking from CO2. And white supremacists are in the streets. And so we need... oh. And parents, domestic terrorist parents, have the yeah. temerity to show up and yell at school board members. Well, I'll we need the shock troops for that. That's what this is about. Well, you're probably right. And I, I just want people to be aware that this isn't the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, uh, the, the OSHA mandates. It's all part of a bigger scope. And you need to be aware of it as it intrudes upon your life. This is all coming to take everything you've ever created away from you because you didn't create it. Remember Obama, you didn't create those businesses. The government let you create those businesses. And I think back to 2007 and the, the, the halcyon days right before the world seemed to implode with the crisis of money. I don't remember, and, and maybe I'm being naive and maybe I just wasn't aware of it. I don't remember this race diversity, this no. whole race dividing until obama came around i didn't feel like we were at each other's throats by by race now it seems like every day look, kyle rittenhouse white supremacist shooting three white guys yeah. that's 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 where well, I feel no, obama obama mainstreamed it i mean obama look obama is the perfect vessel for this okay he is he's a he's steeped steeped in leftist he he was raised by multiple leftists you go back frank marshall davis an actual communist bill ayers a real domestic terrorist with mm -hmm. the weather underground you know you got the whole jeremiah wright thing and so this is a man that was raised and marinated in this stuff for his entire life and so he's the one that started it, even though, of course, he's glib and he's facile and he can read off a prompter with a jutted jaw and a David Brooks thrilling creased pant leg. Um, that's where it started. And what they've realized is, is that that is now just their go to because they believe that that is the easiest path for them to maintain power which is we don't debate people now. We, and this, this had been started even before Obama. But what really happened is that the campus radicals, the faculty lounge people, these people now control the heights of the culture. They yeah. control the corporations. They control big tech. They control the media. They control Hollywood, right? You, you go down the line. And the Democratic Party has been entirely co-opted by these people. And Joe Biden, uh, first of all, he's not a moderate, so he's already inclined to go along with this. But he's so, at this point, uh, diminished mentally and physically that I think even if he wanted to push back, he lacks the ability to do so. And so honestly, Chad, if, if it wasn't Joe Biden as president and it was Bernie Sanders, do you, could you really tell the difference in the policies? Would there be any difference in what this administration is doing? I would say there'd be none. I, I'd say it'd be worse. 
Not 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 that Biden's better, but I think the I actually don't think it would be worse because you tell me one thing that Biden has done that would be less to the left than Bernie Sanders. What policy could Bernie implement that would be further to the left than what Joe Biden has done in his first 11 months? I think Bernie's build back better would have been four or five times as big. Oh, right. But again, but that then becomes in the realm of politically unfeasible. Sure. Right. So, sure. He could have said, actually, we're going to spend uh, 20 trillion Venezuelan bolivars or whatever. But right. ultimately, in terms of the substance of the yeah, policies right. that they're pushing, they're indistinguishable. He yeah, might as well right. be Bernie. You're right. So I was listening to a podcast this week, uh, and well, it was actually Ben Shapiro interviewing Eric Schmidt. Now, for those who don't know, Eric Schmidt was the um, – I'm going to get this right. He was the adult in the room when Google was founded. He was the president of Google when the two – Sergey Brin and um, – I can't remember the other guy's name uh, – put the company together. They needed an adult who actually knew how to run a business, and Eric Schmidt was that guy. He made this statement. I want to get your reaction because when I heard it, I had to write it down because I couldn't believe somebody would be this naive. But he said, we have to remember that we're all Americans and have the same culture and the same values. What What are your thoughts when you hear that? Well, so Eric Schmidt said this? He, he did. I don't know what he means by the same culture. Um there are certain aspects of our culture that are the same, hopefully, as Americans. But, of course, the only thing we've heard for the last – what's the drumbeat for the last five, six, seven, eight years is, no, 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 we don't have the same culture. We're all a bunch of different tribes and certain tribes – actually, one tribe in particular is very bad and all right. the other tribes are good. But even more, we have the same values. I would have loved to follow up and said, please enumerate – the values that you believe are now shared across mm. our culture. And I would have loved to have heard which ones he thinks are actually still something that tie people together in this country. And that was my thought exactly. Maybe the culture, maybe we have a shared historical culture as a country. I think there were shared values. I do not believe as a nation we share the same values. I do not share the same values with those in San Francisco. I do not share the same values with those in New York City as a general rule. I I don't know that they share my values either. And I think the, the preaching of CRT and the preaching of race baiting and race. Well, the left, here's the thing. The left would hate to hear that from him. In fact, he would be demonized yeah. by those people. We say, how dare you suggest that we have anything in common? This country was founded in slavery and oppression and genocide mm -hmm. and imperialism. The, remember, for them, those are the values of America. Right. Those are still the values of America. That's why, as you said earlier, it must be burned to the ground. We have to start over. So they would be incredibly angry with him or anyone to say, oh, no, we actually have some common bonds. Their response would be, no, we don't. America is bad to its marrow, mm -hmm. and we are here to wipe that out, right? Expurgate that from history. We're going to, that's why, that's why all the statues have to come down. We can't possibly look at these people anymore. They have to be scrubbed Soviet style from our memory, memory hold as Orwell would say. So I think he would actually get just yowls of outrage from, from anyone who's on the left to say, how dare you suggest that we share the same values? I do not have the values of those clingers and their 
jacked up pickup trucks and their guns and their Walmart and their oil. It, it was it was shocking to me too. So that's, I just want to hear your thoughts on that. I'm sure uh, he will issue a uh, very soon a heartfelt sure. apology for daring to suggest that. So it's just real quick on this before I get to our final topic. Uh, student loan forgiveness ends in about 70, 74, 73 days. And a survey, I know you're sitting down, so 89% of borrowers with full-time jobs aren't ready to re- start repaying their loans. I know that's a super surprise to you. Not willing, not unable. They're not, just not ready. I need more time to not pay off my loans. Well, why should they be ready? If they've been listening to anything that's been uttered by Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or any of the other leading thought leaders in the uh, Democratic Party, what they really should be saying is, because sooner or later we're really hoping they'll follow through and we, don't, we won't have to pay anything. So strategically, absolutely kick that can as far down the road as possible, because hopefully they're going to find a way that I don't actually have to, uh, you know, shoulder the responsibility of paying off my student loans. Why should I have to? Yeah, it shouldn't shouldn't be my responsibility. Uh, Our last sports related portion, it's the Lamentations from the Lazy Boy. I'm looking at a picture behind you of Michael Jordan. Yes. Um, and I know you are a big last Dance fan, uh, the goat. Uh, apparently, his BFF might not be his BFF anymore, Scotty Pippen. Uh, Scotty has come out, and now I will preface this: I think Scotty's trying to sell books. Scotty wrote a, a book, and it's disparaging towards Michael Jordan. Um, but I think Scotty's got other issues. He he made the the claim that Jordan didn't. Jordan took the fun of basketball away. And I'm thinking from him. Yeah. I'm like, probably, but you won six championships. So, and you did here's, here's Pippen's biggest gripe. And this is not with Jordan. This is with the bulls management. You didn't pay him what he thought he was worth. That's your fault. That's, that's Pippen. That's his man. That's his Pippen's been angry about that. Yeah. For years. Um, so my take on Scottie Pippen is yet yeah, clearly one of the 50 greatest players in NBA history. Mm-hmm. And, and Jordan um, has absolute respect for Pippen, even though Jordan, it's, it's interesting. So Pippen saying it wasn't fun to play with Jordan. He's, I'm sure it wasn't. Jordan, uh, in fact, particularly during his first incarnation when they won the first three championships, um, would have been a guy that if you were mentally weak or not pulling your weight, uh, I'm sure it was a nightmare to compete against him. He was cruel. Mm-hmm. He was a bully. Uh, and this is, this is look, he's a pathologically competitive guy. And people have said, I mean, there's people, Dennis Hobson, there's guys that came on the Bulls and within weeks Jordan had mentally destroyed them because Jordan would decide you can either stand up to me or you can't. If you can't, you're no use to me. You're not going to be able to perform in games. I want you gone. After Jordan went and played baseball for for the two years after his father was murdered, if you read anything from uh, some of the coaches, they said he had a slightly different perspective. It, It hadn't dampened any of his competitive insanity, but in terms of relating to his teammates... Um, he, I think, had come to recognize that, okay, the the Sherman marching to the sea approach, <laughs> dial it back a little bit. Mm-hmm. But getting back, so, but he forged Scottie Pippen. If you mm-hmm. remember, the most infamous 
thing that happened to Scottie Pippen during his career, which he will never live down, is when Jordan was off playing baseball, Scottie Pippen was uh, arguably the MVP of the league or very close to it. He didn't win it. And the Bulls were in the playoffs, and you remember what happened, right? So I forget what game of the series it was. End of the game. It was um, game seven of a series, wasn't it? No, it wasn't a game seven. Um, But he... Phil Jackson decides that the person that's going to take the game-winning shot for the Bulls is not Scottie Pippen. It's Tony Kukoc, who is their very, very talented, somewhat enigmatic um, forward who actually had a more refined offensive game than Scottie Pippen. And so Scottie Pippen, when he finds out that this is the play, he refuses to go back in the game. This is the leader of the team. He sits and pouts on the bench. Tony Kukoc goes in the game and actually hits the game-winning shot. And the, the rest of the Bulls were just astonished, of course, that Pippen had done this, this betrayal of his team. And so Pippen has always been a guy that has been a little thin-skinned, a little, a little insecure. But, Chad, one of the things you have to remember is that for all the griping that Pippen did about his contract, Jordan was under a similarly horrendously bad contract in terms of his value for, I think, the first eight years that he was in the league. Did you ever hear Jordan say a word? No. No. And if there was ever a guy, this guy was the golden goose. He made Jerry Reinsdorf billions of dollars because it wasn't just about his performance which was the greatest player of all time. He was a money machine. Jordan never said a single thing. I think at some point in his eighth year, he was like the 20th or 30th highest paid player in the league when he should have been making 10 times what anyone else made. Jordan didn't yep. say a thing. And what yep. did he do? He, he eventually, well, his contract ended and then Reinsdorf had to pay him 35 and $36 million with his last two seasons, which are still a bargain. So for all of Pippen's griping about being underpaid, and he was the greatest player in the history of basketball was underpaid even more for exactly the same amount of time. So I'm really not shedding any tears for Scottie Pippen, a great player. He's, they could Mm -hmm. not have won six championships without Scottie Pippen. And Jordan admits that. Yeah. So I, I don't know what Scottie's gripe is. Um, he doesn't have to like Jordan. Uh, that's fine. Uh, but you know what? They were, they were arguably think about this, Chad, who's a better duo in the history of the NBA than Jordan and Pippen. Uh, I mean, success wise. Cause I'd say Malone and, um, what's his name? Stockton and Malone. They didn't win six championships, but they oh, were they a great. They didn't duo. win any. They didn't well, win they, any. So they're disqualified. Um, <laughs> No, that, that's the point. When you add in, yeah. if you add in individual talent, individual accomplishments, and then championships, I mean, what yeah. you'd have to think about is somebody from the Russell Celtics, like yeah. Russell and somebody. Um, you know, think of some of the other dynasties. Actually, probably up there, although they only won three, Kobe and Shaq, right? But they're not close. No. I, I don't know that there is. Um, you know, you could say Bird McHale. Maybe. I, I See, I, I feel like the Celtics were a team. Bird was the leader, but they were a team. Uh, I, I feel like Bulls were Pippen and Jordan and three other guys on the floor. 
Well, really. but that, that's not that's not Big necessarily guy. true. I mean, because when they had Rodman, um, yeah. Rodman, even though he, you know he's a flamboyant goofball, arguably the greatest rebounder in NBA history. Not, I don't think it's arguable. I think that's but the first three. Jordan well, Har, you know, Horace Grant was a very good player, but you're right. I mean, they didn't have anyone else who was a, a, a legitimate last. all-star. It was it was no. those two guys with with a, a core that was built around them. You know, yeah. John Paxson, a very yeah. limited guy, but a great spot-up shooter who mm-hmm. could be counted on in crunch time, and he was the perfect guy to run alongside Jordan. So they they had pieces that fit together, but you're right. There were no other, uh, you know, star players on that team. No, so that was the uh, when Pippen didn't go in. It was Game Three of the Eastern Conference Semifinals against the New York Knicks in '94. Um, so that's the the game you're referring to. It, it, to to me, it feels like one. He's trying to sell books. You got to be controversial to sell books. Nobody's going to read a book that says, "Hey, we were all lollipops and rainbows, and we got along great. Everything was wonderful." Nobody's going to buy that book. Secondly, I think he's jealous of Jordan's post NBA success, and he harkens it back to then. We were props to Jordan. Yes, you were props to Jordan. Did you not? Did you not understand that at the time? Did you think you were on the same level? Really? Did you really think you were the same as Michael Jordan? Because if you did, well, that, somebody told you a lie. Well, you I don't really think he did. ever did. And and Pippen has said other things that are revealing. And one of the things I think Pippen learned about when Jordan was gone mm-hmm. is the there's a huge difference between being a second fiddle. And so you have a tendency to say, you know, I should be getting more of the attention. But Pippen then found out, mm-hmm. oh, this is what it's like when you're the guy, when mm-hmm. you have to be the leader of the team every night, when you're the alpha, when everything rests on your shoulders. And of course, he couldn't handle it. No. And so Pippen was never designed from his, you know, from his character, from his personality. He was never going to be that number one guy. He is a great player, but he needed Jordan as the alpha, and he could just run alongside, and it was it was perfect for him. And I think he never fully realized that until the second go around. And he has said that in interviews that yeah, look, you know, Jordan makes it easier for everyone that plays with him. Oh, it's not easy in practice. It's not fun because mm-hmm. it's it's a guy that is. Uh, you know, what did uh, David Halberstam say? He was like he was designed in a lab by scientists to you know sort of be a competitive velociraptor. So not fun to play with that guy. But you know what? He made people he made people better and yep. he they won championships. And when you were on the floor with him, you never had to worry about I'm the guy that all the pressure is on. He's the right. only guy that the pressure is on. Right. Well, and I think that's the. We see that in other sports. You see coaches who are great coordinators who are not head coaches. You see great receivers in football who just really can't, when they're the only guy, they can't get open. They need somebody on the other side to balance it. Jordan was that balance. And you can, we all think we're number one until we realize there's somebody better. And it's okay to be number two. You, you can do very well as a number two if you have a great number one. Batman was great. He needed Robin on occasion. Robin was not Batman. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just not the case. Well, and it doesn't even always have to be that the number one guy is more talented. In Jordan's case, that was obviously true. But for instance, think about the Cavaliers team that won in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. LeBron, obviously the best player on that team. At that time, the best player in the NBA. But who was the closer for that team? Kyrie. 
Yeah. Kyrie won the championship with the, the dagger in mm-hmm. Golden State. If there was a guy on that team as an opponent that you didn't want taking the last shot, it wasn't LeBron. It was Kyrie. So, but Kyrie wasn't the leader of the team. But no. the point is, is that you part of this is talent, part of its mentality, right? Yeah. Part of it is are you a competitive assassin? Um, Jordan was that from the cradle. Mm-hmm. Scotty Pippen is not that guy. And no. he has other in, Scotty Pippen is arguably the greatest defensive player in NBA history. Okay. I mean, we can, we can take Russell out of the equation, but meaning the most versatile six, seven ridiculous wingspan could guard anybody. Jordan's the best two guard defender in league history. Pippen might've been a slightly better on ball defender than Jordan just because of his size. So there's things that Scotty Pippen brought to the table that no one else could replicate. But the one thing that he didn't bring to the table was I'm the man. Yeah. He just isn't. And that's well, okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It, it's perfectly fine. And I don't, I don't, I don't fault him for that. I just think he's a little bit of sour grace, but I, I still couch it and he's trying to sell books at the end of the day. I'm trying to sell books and I'm not going to sell books with everything being wonderful. I need to have some controversy or I'm not going to sell books. That's it. Whether they'll be friends uh, or not. I don't think he's care. still going to sell any books. Well, I mean, you know, people, people will buy it, but it's not as if people are out there clamoring for, I couldn't wait for that Scotty Pippen tell all. (laughs) Oh, when's that come out? I'm great for that. So to finish up, uh, the Steelers are still bad. Um, They, they had a tie with uh, the Detroit lions who remain winless, but will not be the first Owen 17 team because they have a tie on their record, which is almost Uh, even worse. It it almost is. And I think this was uh, Mike Tomlin's way of saying, see, I can't, I, I won't not only have a winning season, but I won't have a losing season. So there's a shot. He could go eight, eight and one. I, I think that's what he's shooting for. We'll see. Um, I was in state college last week for right after the Penn state, Michigan game. And it, it was, it was weird to me because it seemed like the Penn state fans acted as though they just lost the national championship. And I tried to remind myself they were six and three coming in. Now they're six and four. Yeah. What we, you weren't going to win the national championship. Not that I think the Wolverines will either, but you're six and four. Okay. Well, the, the shame of it for Penn state is if, if Sean Clifford is healthy uh, for Iowa and for Illinois there, they probably finish the season and go to a major bowl. They finish with one or two losses. I actually think this year's team, um, with him playing and healthy is probably a top 10 team. They're not a top five team. They're probably like eight or nine in the country. Mm. Um, but here's the thing. And we've talked about this. Number one, if you are a top 10 program, your team cannot go from being number eight or seven in the country to number 58 because one guy, now I understand quarterback is the most important position on the field, but I'm sorry. You have to have somebody that is semi-competent to at least stop the bleeding. And, and look, Sean Clifford is a good quarterback, but he's not a world beater, right? So the fact that Sean Clifford dictates your fate so completely is a very bad sign for what is supposed to be a top-shelf program. Now, of course, their other quarterback is now playing for Kentucky, um, okay. Will Levin. But nevertheless, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, you know, this is Franklin's habit, which is, they lose games that they should never lose. He's sort of becoming like Harbaugh in a way. 
I mean, if you think back, and again, I'm not a big Penn State booster. You know, I yeah. I kind of follow them, but they have blown. They blew the Rose Bowl game against USC when they had a really good team. They've blown. They blew back to back years where they should have absolutely beaten Ohio State. In fact, I think they were leading Ohio State in the horseshoe by twenty something at half two two years in a row. Um, of course, this Illinois debacle, right? So this is this is sort of a recurring issue. The same way that for Harbaugh, Michigan every year supposedly ready to challenge, and then they wet the bed. And of course, they can they can't beat Ohio State. And I think Ohio State is going to crush them. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, for Michigan to have any shot, Michigan State had to lose today to Ohio State, which happened. Michigan had to beat Maryland, which happened. But I don't. I do not believe. The Jim Harbaugh has shown me anything. I believe James Franklin outcoached Jim Harbaugh last week. Now, those are words you don't hear too often that James Franklin outcoached somebody, but I think he outcoached Harbaugh. But again, it's a low bar, so I don't give him a whole lot of credit. I do not understand how Penn State can, secondly, have no second quarterback that you can throw out there. That's a coaching issue. It's a recruiting issue and a coaching issue. I don't care that somebody transferred. All schools have transfers. Michigan had transfers, too. You don't have a second quarterback to put out there, and you have no running game. That's now, correct. Who is that? that is not either, either the talent isn't there, so your recruiting isn't as good as you thought, or the coaching isn't there, so you're not as good as you thought. One of those two is happening or both, and, and Michigan has seen that year in and year out. Today, Michigan went with the quarterback rotation again. I think it is the dumbest thing you can possibly do in college football. It's an emotional game at that level, and – People aren't ready to step in and get cold and hung back in and go hot. You don't do it. It didn't work at Florida. It didn't work at South Carolina. It's not going to work for Michigan. That's my. I, I think the only way. First of all, I, I should back up. It never works in my view. I don't. Con- so, for instance, Tim Tebow at Florida when he was when he was a freshman, he wasn't the other quarterback. He was a specialist who they brought in for goal line plays. That's different. Okay. Correct. Same thing with, you know, Cam last week where, okay, so we're going to put you in near the goal line because you're 260 pounds. But if you're literally doing the, you know, we're, we're swapping back and forth, I don't think that has ever worked in the history of football, peewee, high school, college, the NFL. One of the reasons it doesn't is, as you said, you have to be able to get in a rhythm as a quarterback that can never happen if you're constantly coming in and out of the game. And it also mess. I'm sorry, it messes with your head, right? Mm-hmm. You need to make a decision. We've got a guy who's our best guy and we're riding with him. And you know what? He's going to have games where he has three interceptions and he's terrible and he's still the guy. Cause the one thing that will immediately destroy any athlete's confidence is I got to look over my shoulder after that series, right? Uh Oh, yep. bad throw, bad play. Am I getting the hook? Yep. You can't have anyone who plays in that kind of scenario perform at their best. They just can't. Well, and, and think people don't realize this unless you've played, and I, I've never played football, so don't quote me on this. When a quarterback throws it, they have a certain way of throwing the ball, which means when a receiver catches the ball, it comes in a certain way. They have tendencies. They have ways of throwing it. Uh, Peyton Manning threw wounded ducks most of the time. John Elway threw rifles, you know, shotguns out, and you just had to catch it. Same thing happens with handoff to a, a running back. You hand it off differently based on who you are. You ha- that's just human nature. So when you bring in somebody else, now you're expecting that center to snap it 
a little bit differently. You're expecting the quarterback to hand it off differently or throw it differently. That is hard for a pro to do. It's very hard for a college student to do and a high school student. Forget it. If they're, they're barely able to catch the ball to begin with. I think it makes the, the job of your offense that much harder. Don't tell me you're trying to give them a spark. That, that's, that's the old age old excuse. It doesn't work. The only reason to take the quarterback out is that they're hurt or they're really screwing up and you're just going to stick with the next guy because you think That's they're it. the best option to win. And you again, don't, if you're bringing out. a guy in for four or five plays a game, that's not a dual quarterback situation. That's a specialist who you yeah. bring into the game for specific plays. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, you're going to do one series and then you'll do the next series. You know what, coach, you're supposed to figure that out in exactly. summer camp. That's when that happens. Not yeah. in the middle of the season when we're playing, you know, are you going to do this against Ohio state? I think he will. And I think it's a stupid decision. I, I would be shocked if he didn't, again, if it's a special, if it's a Taysom Hill with the saints, he's coming in to do something special. That's fine. And these guys practice it. He knows what he's doing, but to run the normal play schemes with a different guy, just because it's a different guy, you're not, you're, you're too smart by half because you think you're throwing off the defense and all you're doing is throwing off your own offense. It doesn't make yeah. any sense. It's, I mean, to me, it's the ultimate cop out, which is essentially, decide who your yeah. best player is at that position and then organize yeah. your scheme and your offense around him. And guess what? If the one guy has a totally different skill set, then you plan around that skill set. You don't go back and, Oh, here's our pocket passer. Now we're going to have the guy that can run. Well, <laughs> decide what kind of offense you want to have. Yeah. Are you more effective yeah. with a pocket passer that throws? Or are you more effective with a power run game with a guy that's elusive and gets out of the pocket? Whichever it is, pick one and then stick yeah. with it. Just stay there and be done with it. Do you think James Franklin is leaving Penn State at the end of the season? I, I have no, I have no idea. I'm, I'm not a guy that pays enough attention. You know, there's, uh, there's a couple of the guys that I work with that went there and they're all tied in and they're, you know, the yeah. grapevine, this and that, and USC. I don't think USC would want him. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I'm not sure why Franklin is a guy that's in that much demand. He is who he right. is. He's a, uh, he's a bit of a used car salesman. You know, he's look, he runs a solid program. If he's your coach, you know, you're going to win eight to nine games. Maybe if you've got outsized talent, you're going to, you'll win 10, you'll get to a good bowl. You're mm -hmm. never going to win a national championship. And, and he's overrated in my view as a recruiter. Now, Penn State, apparently, my neighbor's a huge Penn State fan. Apparently, Penn State has the best or the second oh, yeah. best recruiting class in the country coming in this year. Yeah. But for the most part, they're not close to competing with the no. Ohio State's, uh, you know, the LSU's, Alabama's of the world. I mean, I don't even know whether they're consistently in the top 10. And Franklin had been touted as, you know, that's his thing. He recruits. Yeah. He's the CEO. He brings him in. Eh, look, who's the last stud true stud talent that i know who it is well okay other than saquon okay so saquon who else <laughs> who else probably okay you know probably godwin um maybe well and of course micah parsons who is who's also kind of a freak athlete but yeah. they're not bringing in and this is what we've just been talking about. They don't have the cupboard stacked with no. four and five star guys like a lot of these other programs. Ohio State can roll out at every position uh, a top 50 player, three, four deep. Yeah. Easy. And Alabama can do the same thing. And I think that's the issue. You can't compete until you can compete. And I, I think Franklin's a decent recruiter. I don't think he's a particularly good coach. And 
part of being a head coach in, in college is being a recruiter, but it's also coaching. It's kids want to know, can I get to the next level? That's how you get the, the top recruits. What brings me to state college, Pennsylvania? Well, I either have a personal connection because I have a family member in here. I, I, I like something here. My girlfriend's going here, something like that. I don't see, and I say the same for Ann Arbor, even Columbus. You're not going to those places unless you're from the general vicinity or you have a personal connection to that university or you think it can get you to the next level. If you're a wide receiver, maybe you go to Ohio State because they've had a lot of good wide receivers come out of there uh, of, of, of recent vintage and even further back. Maybe if you're a great linebacker at one time, you would have gone to Penn State. Yep. But that's not how you win games with, that, with linebackers. They've never been a quarterback university. They've never been nope. maybe running back, but failed at the professional level running back level. I don't know of anybody that really had a great career in the NFL that came out of Penn State. Franco Harris being an exception. Maybe Kurt Warner in 84. Well, the, the jury's still out on yeah. Saquon. You know, he's early yeah. in his career. But it, it's, um, well, it's and, and to your, and unfortunately for Kurt Warner, he actually was headed to a hall of fame career and he just got injured. Yeah. I, mean, I think he is the guy, if you look at his stats when he was with Seattle, he was yeah. a great running back in the NFL for a couple of seasons. And then, you know, he shredded his knee and that was it. And, that, and that's what happens to running backs. Kajana Carter never did anything in the, he got hurt again. Injuries happen. Do you, do you have a long productive career? And maybe you do, and maybe you don't, but that's not when people think of stud running backs, they don't think of Penn state. I think we could wrap this and I think you'll agree with this by saying there is only one elite football program in the big 10 and that is Ohio state right now. Uh, yeah. It used to be, they used to have three of them it used to yeah. be Michigan, Ohio state and Penn state, uh, Penn state and Michigan have not been elite programs for the last 15, 20 years, 15 years. I would say I, th- I would say Michigan lost any elite status probably by 2007 or eight. You I mean when, when Lloyd Carr left, that was the end of their elite status. And I don't think Lloyd Carr was the greatest c- coach either, but that was their last time of being but elite. But the fan bases, the respective fan bases continue to think that they are, an, they are elite programs and they're not. And by elite, what I mean is you are every year contending for a national championship. Michigan and Penn state have not been in that position for well over a decade, probably two decades. Michigan last one in 98, I believe 97, 98. I can't remember which was, and Tennessee won the other one. Yeah. But Tennessee hasn't been a good team. They still think they're, they're right. World, they're, they're horrible. It's Alabama Clemson's down this year, but they have been for the last couple of years. Uh, Ohio State, but Ohio State doesn't do anything in the college football playoffs, so who knows if they can ever actually turn the corner. And then the fourth person that gets to be beaten, Oklahoma. Well, well, no, actually this year, Georgia might be the best team in the country. So uh, this year, Georgia, if Georgia doesn't win this year, they might as well give up because there's there's a curse. They clearly, (laughs) from from performance and talent, have the best team in the country. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to win. And and believe me, if they have to play Alabama – they you know, will. if Alabama rolls in at number four, now, of course, they're going to play in the SEC championship game. And then the question becomes, does a two loss Alabama team still get in? And I think they will. It depends. Well, I think it depends on what happens next week with Michigan and Ohio State, because you could make a case that a two loss Ohio State is better than a undefeated Cincinnati. 
No, that'll never happen. If Ohio State loses to Michigan, they're done. They're out. Um, so Ohio State basically has to beat Michigan to secure their place. If they lose, they're done. And then there's nobody from that conference that's going. And that actually, that's what all these other teams are praying for. They want, yeah. they need Ohio State to lose, you know, and then, then it becomes an interesting question. If Alabama loses to Georgia, you know, do you, do you remove Alabama as well? Well, whoever wins the Big Ten East is going to have to play Wisconsin, which would like most likely Wisconsin. That's not a real great matchup for them. It doesn't give them points on that. So you could be right. I mean, I think Georgia will meet in the SEC title game with Alabama. That should be a wonderful game to watch. And I think the winner of that, in my mind, is the national champion. You just have to play two more games to find out. That, that's my guess. Um, I could be wrong. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> see the real the thing is if Alabama wins that game they're they're both I mean Georgia's getting in the playoff regardless uh there's I mean Georgia will only have one loss so the, I think either way that game goes Alabama's still getting in I don't think they necessarily should meaning I still think Alabama gets in even if they lose now if Georgia completely blows them out which that's not going to happen um, then I think Alabama has has trouble. But if it's a close game, one touchdown, 10 points, Alabama loses, I think they're still in the playoff. And then there's going to be a lot of screaming about how the SEC you know, gets favored all the time. They won't be wrong, but you got to beat the king. You want to win, beat the king. That's all you can say. All right, we'll, we'll get out of here on that. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'm Chad. I'm Tony. Good night. This has been a Hannah Tree production.